You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Hello and welcome to another week of the Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins, your host as always. Each week we delve deep into the property issues most affecting Perth people and we get our number one thought leaders in real estate to help us out. And today we have a really interesting topic. We are talking how to get rid of a bad tenant, how to evict a bad tenant. This has been a point personally of pain in the past and something where a lot of people in Western Australia really do struggle to understand the right process as a landlord to protect yourself to make sure that you're not going to be taken advantage of by a tenant and that you're getting things done as quickly as possible to make sure that you can move into that next phase, get that tenant out, get a new one in and start getting some rental return back. To help us out, we've got our property management expert, Daisy Campbell from Exceed Real Estate. Daisy, thanks for coming in. Hi, Trent. Thanks for having me. Daisy, let's get right into it. Let's talk getting rid of bad tenants. All right. Well, this is an interesting topic. And I guess, firstly, everybody has a different definition of bad. There are a number of reasons why somebody might want to evict their tenant. And the two main ones that I'm going to touch on today is uh, a tenant that's causing damage to your property Mm -hmm. and also a tenant who stopped paying the rent. Um, And those two don't necessarily go hand in hand. They've got different processes, don't they? Absolutely. And you may have a tenant who is paying their rent on time but has damaged the property. Or you might have a tenant who has keeping the property really, really well but has failed to pay the rent. They are two very different processes. And if you do have a tenant who's doing both, then you may choose, depending on the situation, which process is best to take. And I'll explain a little bit more about that later, how to decide which one's the best option to take if you have got both of those situations going on. The point is you can't just rock up at the house, knock on the door and demand your money. No, that's absolutely right. You cannot rock up at the property as tempting as that might be. And I think, you know, you can't get blood out of a stone. Sometimes it may be that that tenant just does not have the capacity to pay anymore, even if they wanted to. Yeah, let's be honest. There's a lot of people in tough times in Perth at the moment who have been great tenants for years and they've just fallen on hard times. They may have lost their job and putting food on the table is their number one priority. And when they can pay the rent, I'm sure they would like to, but at the moment they can't. As a landlord, whilst we may have sympathy for that, it's really business in a lot of ways. How can we follow that business process to be able to find a middle ground to be able to get the outcome we're looking for? I think the first point is it's always best if you're able to negotiate this situation with the tenant because if you are going down the route of serving notices and going to court and then eventually having to arrange a bailiff, then it can be a very timely, costly and upsetting process for all parties involved. Mm. If you are able to have a conversation with the tenant and say, you know, this is the situation, when can you move out by and mutually agree a termination? date that is by far the best outcome for Mm. everybody but of course that's not always possible so I'll start by the process if you have a tenant who's been in arrears so if your tenant has failed to pay their rent a number of times and you've gone down the path of serving breach notices and sending reminders and this is now the point where you've decided okay I need to get them out of the property now regardless of whether they pay or not because I know that they're just not going to be able to pay again Mm. and you do end up with those serial tenants who will get a couple of weeks behind and then situation starts to get serious court gets involved and then they pay everything up And then it just repeats itself. And again, that's not good for the landlord either. So if you do have that situation and you have served the termination notice on a tenant, there are a number of notices that are required. So you can serve a breach notice to begin with. After what circumstance? So after the tenant has fallen one day behind in their rent, you can serve this breach notice on the tenant. Now, if you have one of the newer lease agreements, then you are able to serve notices electronically as long as that's been ticked as a yes on the lease agreement, Mm -hmm. which means that you can serve it via email. Now, if if you don't have a newer lease or you haven't got that section completed on your release agreement, then you will unfortunately need to post that that notice. And how do you prove you posted it? Well, you, 
will need to record that somewhere. So you will need to keep your own little mail register or you can serve it in person to the tenant, which is fine. So you could get them to sign to say that they've received that notice. Mm. Now, if you're going to post that letter, you do need to allow six days for postage as well. So that obviously prolongs the period. You know, that's nearly another week's another rent. Another week's rent, go on. Yeah. Exactly. So it is best to serve notices electronically where you can, yep. particularly where you know the tenant's going to get that as well. And it's going to be on the front foot with those breaches, isn't it? As much as someone may have just forgotten for the day, and it might be a little bit abrasive to receive a breach notice the day after, if you can get that breach notice in first day, they pay the next day, that's fine. But if they don't, and this is a time where they're actually planning not to pay, you've started that process for yourself as soon as possible, haven't you? Mm, absolutely. And look, if you serve that breach notice on that tenant and they pay straight away, then that is fantastic. A lot of insurance companies, if you have not breached that tenant or you have not followed that correct process, they won't actually pay you out for your loss of rent claim when it comes down to the crunch. So we do have a lot of owners who say, oh no, you know, be a bit lenient. I don't want to breach them. I don't want to upset them right now. And we say, look, we can serve the breach in a polite, nice way, but we do recommend taking this course of action or, you know, it may affect your insurance policy if you need to make a claim down the track. So that mm. is very important. Yep. Now, if you've served that breach notice, then you you can wait for 14 days for that tenant to bring their rent back up to date. And if they haven't made any payment, then you go along the route of serving the termination notice. So that's what you would do if you found your tenant was just beginning to get into arrears. Now, if you've had a repeat offender, a tenant who's constantly been behind and you you need to get them out now, you know this is the path you want to take, then there is a termination notice, a Form 1B, it's called, that you can Mm -hmm. serve straight away. And that means no breaches required beforehand. You are going to terminate this agreement. Mm -hmm. If the tenant hasn't paid their rent within that seven days of that breach agreement, then you do need to make an application to court because at the end of the day, effectively your termination notice is just a piece of paper telling the tenant that they have to pay their rent or get out. And it might just scare them really, but it's not actually getting them out of the house. That's exactly right. And there are a lot of professional tenants, if you will, out there who know that it's just a piece of paper and they've still got a lot more time up their sleeve once that's happened. Mm. So look, if that tenant has not paid their rent or moved out on that notice, then I'd suggest making an application to court straight away. Application to court will cost you 60 odd dollars. Certainly worth doing because then it shows the tenant that you're serious. You have a period Mm. of 30 days to lodge that application after the notice has expired. If you wait any longer than that, you will have to start with the notice all over again. 60 bucks, it's it's one day's rent, isn't it? Totally, yep. So look, I I highly recommend making that application right away so that the tenant knows that that's serious. Tenant does have the opportunity to pay their rent up in full up to one day before that court hearing. Something else you do have to be mindful of is a lot of tenants might ask for an adjournment for whatever reason in the courts and it can prolong the the hearing process even more. So just because you've made that application to go to court doesn't necessarily mean this is all going to be done and dusted quite quickly. Once you finally do get a court hearing set and in WA, the court hearings are set by location to the property. So it doesn't matter where you live, it'll be the court that's closest to that property. Mm-hmm. And every court is operating on a, you know, a different time schedule. So it just depends as to how long your wait time will be. You know, we have seen up to four or five weeks sometimes waiting for a hearing, which is, you know, quite lengthy. And again, if your tenant's not paying rent in that time, it's pretty significant. So we're talking a couple of weeks after the breach notice, which we hopefully submitted the day after the, the rent should have been in. Yep. From there, 30 days. From the, um, from the for ten- 30 days from the termination from the notice. termination yep. notice. So 30 days from the termination notice. So when you fill in your court application, you can do that online or you can do it in person if you're not sure. Mm. And they've made it really easy online for you to fill in your reasons for the application and to submit all of the details. So it's not a difficult or even a lengthy process. Mm. Once the hearing has been set, you will need to attend. If you have a property manager, then they'll always attend on your behalf. Mm. And look, they bring with them a copy of the ledger and any evidence to show that this tenant you know, has been behind and, and seeking a termination date. Quite often what 
what will happen if the tenant turns up then they will you can mutually agree on a date that the tenant can get out so the tenant might say okay you know I, I need seven or 14 days to move out if the tenant doesn't turn up or the tenant doesn't try and negotiate then generally the decision will be made either by a registrar so when you do go to court sorry I should have started with this when you do go to court normally you will firstly be heard by a registrar to try and mediate and make a decision a registrar can create a court order if it's by you know mutual agreement of both parties but if you can't agree then it will generally go down to see a magistrate and then they will set a court order and make the decision for you um, as to when that tenant will go out often when there's children involved they can be a little bit more lenient and allow a little bit more time as well Mm. for that tenant to get out and try and find a new property so worst case couple of months even more and the goal when we get when we get to that court hearing is to get a set date what if they don't leave by that date And that happens very often. Again, the court order is just another piece of paper that says you've got to be out on Mm. this date. Mm. No um, one's picking them up and pushing them out the door. Exactly. And look, if the tenants haven't left by that date, then you do need to apply for a bailiff, which again is a lot more costly. You're looking upwards of $500 to have a bailiff enforce that order. Mm -hmm. And then the bailiffs have their own process. So once you've lodged that application with the bailiff, then they will serve a notice on the tenant. How long does that take? The bailiff will serve their notice on the tenant to advise them what date that they'll be coming to the property. And then the bailiff will come and meet you there with a locksmith and that's where you know they will forcibly remove the tenant from the property if they need to and again it can be a really messy process as a property manager we've been there with the bailiff and the tenant has not been ready to move and we have had to stand there you know while the tenant moves their belongings out of the property um, you know and obviously they haven't been able to move everything out all at once and then you have to make an appointment to go back the goal is to have the tenant remove as much of their belongings from the property as you can you do not want items left behind Mm. or you're stepping into a whole other ball game in terms of items of value needing to be stored or rubbish disposal if they are you know just rubbish that the tenants have left behind so you really want to try and um, communicate with the tenant as much as possible to and I I guess cooperate with them to get as much of their stuff out of that property because it's going to be an expense for you to bear up front at the end okay so obviously that sounds worst case scenario there but Mm -hmm. it's good to know what that that process is you said that there's we're going to talk about another situation when the tenant is still paying their rent but they're just not looking after the place Yep. So look, um, if the tenant is damaging the property, it's why it's very important for you to be doing inspections on the property, your quarterly inspections. Quarterly, yep. Yep. So if you have a property manager, then they'll be doing those inspections for you. And if they note any damage, then it is important to breach the tenant on these things. So say, for example, the tenant has, you know, damaged the walls in the lounge room, you know, they've punched holes in them or they've, or they're, they're just not caring for the property. There might mm. be animal feces throughout the house, which mm. is something that we've seen before as well. Great. If that's the case, yes, <laughs> it is. If that's the case, then you want to breach that tenant straight away because you know that that's going to create further damage to the property and you can see already the way they're taking care of the property is it's not, not acceptable. Yep. Yeah, absolutely not. So you would serve a breach notice on that tenant. It gives them 14 days to rectify that breach. So you put into the, the breach the details of what those items are specifically and what you require them to do to remedy that breach. Mm. And then in 14 days, you would go back and reinspect the property. Now, if the tenant still hasn't rectified any of those items to your satisfaction, well, then that's when I would be making an application to court if you're wanting to get them out on this damage. And the process goes fairly similar from there? It does, it does. Now, in damage to the property, you may end up at court and they may just order the tenant to, to leave. repair repair those damages oh. as opposed to leave the property. They'll take into consideration the tenant's circumstances. So that one can be a lot more tricky. It really just depends on the extent of the damage and it does also depend, I suppose, on the tenant's circumstances. You know, if they, if they go in there and they have got nowhere else to go, mm. then the magistrate may be a lot more lenient. So again, negotiation with the tenant and communicating with them is 
absolutely key, I think, in resolving these issues. We try to avoid court situations wherever possible because you don't know how long it's going to take you to get to court. You don't know how long it's going to take you in court. And you also don't know what the outcome is going to be. There's a whole lot of variables in there. So wherever you can communicate effectively with the tenant to get the best outcome, obviously that is the ideal. I'm getting that obviously communication here from the start seems to be the most important factor, especially if, for example, in this situation, the tenant's still paying their rent, but they just have lower expectations of how the property should be kept just mm-hmm. given their, their culture or whatnot. It, it sounds like something that could have easily been in a lot of cases uh, smoothed out by a conversation of exactly how we expect the gardens, uh, the, the way that's been left from the day they arrived. Uh, the walls should not have extra holes on them if we haven't allowed you to do so or if you want to ask us or you know just general things like that. It sounds like as long as that communication can happen at the start, we could be avoiding a lot of issue and a lot of heartache. Absolutely. Education is key. And even just, you know, we you obviously educate these tenants at the beginning about what you expect when they live in the property. But from the moment you see that it's not acceptable, rather than just sending this breach, you know, notice in the mail and there's no more to say, just leaving them to interpret that their own way. Mm. You know, it's important to go and, and have a chat with them and say, hey, this is what you're receiving. This is how serious it is. You could end up in court over this. Mm. This is going to be a blemish on your rental history. You could end up listed on a tenancy database for this. Mm. It's really important. So really helping those tenants to understand just how serious and important it is and quite often you'll find that that is well received and that's enough yeah Mm. to push them into gear and to get that fixed up daisy thanks a lot for your time again thanks for coming in and i hope to have you again sometime soon you're welcome thank you all right now it's time for our suburb spotlight this week we are talking rivervale and to help us out we've got rivervale's number one real estate agent stephen webster from burke steve thanks for coming in thanks thanks trent really appreciate it steve i love rivervale because not only has it had some real change recently in getting the Great and Highway upgrades come through, you've got the stadium, you've got some upgrades to Belmont Forum, but you're so close to the city as well without being that close that it's particularly noisy. It's still a family suburb. Yeah, and it's actually becoming a bigger family suburb. The last uh, census, we noticed uh, the 25 to 35-year-old demographic had grown quite a lot. And actually, in fact, the Belmont Council were caught out by it, how big that had become. It's an old suburb, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It goes back to the early 1900s, but probably 1950s when it really started to take off when the government put a lot of government homes into the area. And we still see some of those homes are still there. Oh, for sure. There's more and more of those homes getting knocked down and new ones getting built, but people are also starting to uh, renovate those homes as well. What are we talking? Two by ones, three by ones on 800 square metres? What is that? Is that a good representation or is it a little different? Probably predominantly th- uh, three by ones, two by ones with the sleep out, but on probably 680 to 700 square metre blocks. Let's start from the top here. I want to yeah, really talk about that history as to what Rivervale was to Perth at its time and how it's changed. Do you have some background for everyone who may not really understand what Rivervale is as a suburb? Going back in the early 1900s, it was probably your butchers. Uh, there was a lot of farmland out that way. You know, it was cut off. It was away from the city. It was pretty hard to get to. It's probably the Polyfarmer Freeway really opened up Rivervale you know, 10, 12 years ago. That's that's really made a big difference to Rivervale. Mm. So basically what happened was uh, when the Polyfarmer opened up Rivervale to the city it was a lot. It's a lot easier to get there now. We're almost like an inner city suburb, so a lot of families have started moving there. A lot of uh, young couples who work in the city. We got people who ride to work from Rivervale now. Mm. Uh, whereas before Poly Farmer came along, it was, it was challenging to get to the city. Now we can talk about it a bit later, but the city of Belmont's really helped that change come along with some with some zoning changes as well. Oh, for sure. Five years ago, a block you wouldn't be able to build a duplex on it. Now you can get you know eight, nine, ten apartments on there if you have the right type of block. In terms of demographics. We've just referenced the the young families. We've obviously got those guys who have been around since day dot as well, pass it down through the family even. 
Uh, can you explain a bit more, you know, what sort of families are moving into Rivervale uh, right now? Or, or not just families, we're getting young professionals. How is it set up and what are people looking for out of a suburb like Rivervale? Uh, definitely young professionals. Uh, probably in the last year to two years, I've noticed quite a lot of uh, young couples who uh, want to be close to the city. They're prepared probably to do a bit more work to the homes, so they're not expecting a nice brand new 4 by 2 McMansion that you can get, you know, 30, 40 k's out from the city. Yeah, they just they want to be close to the city, and they, they are young couples. That That's definitely something I've noticed a lot, and work in the city. And as you referenced, there's some new different types of building products now as, as homes for people to buy and get into or rent. Sure, yeah. Probably five years ago, it was mainly just duplexes. Now you're seeing, you know, three, four, five townhouses, or you're seeing okay. the seven, eight, nine apartment complexes. So two by ones, three by twos. I guess now then, because of that zoning change, there is a full spectrum of property type that you could go for. Yeah, there is definitely. Yeah. You know, you can start with a, a one by one all the way up to a four by two townhouse. So the, the, risk, the spectrum's huge. So let's talk about price points then. If we can go through all those products, just off the top of your head, what are we paying for these types of products? One by ones, you're probably looking anywhere between 280 and 300. Two by ones, 300 to 330, depending on the streets in. Then two by twos, 350, 360. And then all the way up to, we've got townhouses now that we're chasing in the high sixes. Yeah. You, know, you, you never saw that three years ago. Well, River Valley is gentrifying really as a suburb, isn't it? As you said, it was cut off. It was something that's probably undervalued for its position until the, the freeway came in. And now you've not only got the freeway opening it up, you've got the stadium, as I said, you've got Great Eastern Highway, you've got the airport link making it much quicker to get there. Redcliffe Station coming in soon, Belmont Forum upgrades. Rivervale's now in the middle of it all, isn't it? The classic example of that is four or five years ago, very lucky if you could go anywhere for breakfast in the morning on the weekends. Now there's at least eight, nine places on the weekends you'll see you know, breakfast early in the morning. I think that was a big point. Whenever considering an inner city suburb, and I would consider Rivervale to be inner city, I'd look at Rivervale personally and, and say, yeah, look, you know, prices are seeming pretty good, but there's just nothing to do. Things have changed. Things are changing, aren't they? If you came into Rivervale, you'd have to go over to the next door suburbs to, to have your coffee or your you know, your early morning breakfast. Yep. Now you can stay in, in Belmont. And the, the cinema complex is a classic example. Uh, the, you know, the wife will go, the movie's on at 3 o'clock, and I'll say, well, what time is it now? And she'll go 10 to 3, and we'll go, well, we'll be a bit early, but let's get going. There's a lot more to do in Belmont now. And as you go down Grayston Highway... Uh, I guess a lot of people are now noticing the big high-rise stuff going up on the northern side of Grayson Highway in between the river and, and the highway there. Is that selling well? Is it a good investment? Has it been overdone? Is there still opportunity with the new stadium? Is there an impact there? What, what are your thoughts on what's happened there? I think it's a good thing that, that it's happened. Uh, but I think it's, maybe there's some mixed results from people. Yeah, I think uh, we're victims of oversupply at the moment with when it comes to apartments in there. Um, the location's great. So long term, you can't go wrong. The views are amazing. I've been up to some of those apartments and it's it's fantastic. It's like being, you know, when you're in New York, everyone says, oh, let's go to the Empire State Building. But the real gem is going to the Chrysler Building so you can look at the Empire State Building. I think that's what Rivervale is to Perth. Yeah, if you if you if you're lucky enough to get up and in those apartments, look down the river towards the city and also the stadium. The, the views are they're unbelievable. Well, think about this. You know, obviously the the sun sets in the west, so you've got this amazing view of the the city in front of a setting sun. I think that's that's unique to Rivervale as a view. And most people forget as well. You're you're 100 meters from the river in those apartments. In fact, you can walk to the stadium. It'll take you 20 25 minutes to walk to the stadium. So everything's close now. 
So let's focus on development capacity now. I really want to nut down to it. We referenced it very quickly, but development obviously being a big opportunity for investors. City of Belmont is a little different in the way that they approach development. They're very strategic about it. Can you run through how developing in Rivervale may be a little unique compared to other suburbs around Perth? Sure. You've got to be mindful just because you see a split zoning R20, R40 and think oh, straight away, I'm going to be able to put 10 apartments on here. That's, mm. that's not necessarily the case. They've got they're happy to help with the higher zoning, but you're normally going to jump through hoops and it might be you're going to have a minimum of 16 metre frontage. Most people don't know that. So they may say that 50% of the properties on that development site have to be two-storey. Mm. So, so, for example, you know, I see a lot, and I've, I've nearly been caught in it back in the day, where I'd see a, a corner lot. It was zoned R40, 700 square metres, perfect for a triplex, and it's marketed that way. But then you realise, why has anyone bought this? And then you do some more research and it's that to be able to do that, at least two of those triplexes have to be a townhouse, which is expensive. Yeah, yeah, it is. And and it does, it pushes out the prices. Most people don't realize that when you go from a single story to two story, there's there's costs. Significant and- increases in getting it done. And a lot of people just don't have the money to do that. I do understand though why the cities put that measure in place. They want to create a certain amenity and quality in the suburb, especially a suburb like Rivervale, which given it's location really has the ability to move up a, a rank in terms of demographic doesn't it it is i mean if you go back to the uh, late 90s unfortunately back then they allowed small houses to get built on large blocks mm. and we're paying the price for that now so they realize now that let's make sure these properties are good size properties that can build for a family basically if two people start there but it can be big enough for three or four people when they have children down the track was houses back in the 90s a lot of them that i noticed you couldn't really expand the family. Let's put our investor hat on for a second. We want to invest in Rivervale. We want to either do an apartment building or a a triplex or a side-by-side. Tell us what we should be looking for to get that done and what we might have to pay to get in. What I'm noticing at the moment is people buying the 900 square meter blocks or 1,000 square meter blocks and just splitting them down the middle and selling them as vacant land. Yep. Uh, There's some money to be made there? Can be. Got to just be mindful that builders uh, like you to have 11 metre frontages. So, mm. you know, you've, you've got to search around and find the right builder who can build a home for you on a 10 metre frontage mm. and not charge a fortune for it. So I've seen people making money out of that in the last two years, definitely. And what are people paying for that? At the moment, you probably pay anywhere between 600 and 650 for a 900 to 1,000 square metre block that can be split down the middle. Yep. Are people getting on with the multi-dwelling apartments, your boutique apartments? I know it's it's happened, it's it's been done a little bit, but it's obviously come back with the market. Is are the numbers stacking up for anyone at the moment? For apartments, no. Uh, for townhouses, yeah, we've started to get quite a lot of uh, inquiry about townhouses rather than apartments. But if mm. you buy the land correctly, you can still do apartments as long as you pitch it at the right price at the end. It might be a case of understanding that look, apartments are actually the solution that best fits the block. Prices might not be there today. We've seen them there before. Let's buy cheap now at that sort of wholesale price, sit on it for a couple of years, rent it out to the granny in the house, and then in a couple of years, we'll, we'll re-look at our pre-feasibility and see if it works now. All you need is that $10,000, $20,000 uptick in price, don't you? When you're multiplying that by 10 apartments, there's your profit line. That's that's for sure. And it, that, it's all about numbers. It is definitely, yeah, the, the bigger the numbers, the, you don't need as big a profit to make it work. So Steve, we ask this question every week to our number one real estate agent. It's the median house price question. If you had in your pocket today, the median house price worth of money, what would you spend it on? So firstly, what is the median house price? And secondly, what will you do with it? Median house price in Riverville 
kind of sits around where Perth is. If you follow the Perth track, you'll see that Rivervale's always stuck around about the same amount. At the moment, Rivervale's about 520, uh, you know, 520,000. Um, so for that, if you could, I would be picking up something that's on a 700 square meter block, do the house up, or hang on to that for five, 10 years time, designing changes, only has to go to R30, you've got yourself a duplex block. Great. There's some forward thinking and also some optionality for today as well. Steve, thanks a lot for your time. I really appreciate you coming in. We'll hope to have you in again soon. Cheers. Thanks for the opportunity, Trent. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!